Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Last week, Pastor Chad talked about uh, healing the deaf man, right? And we talked about how he had been unable, uh, unable to speak and how after he was healed, he was unable not to speak. Right after he had experienced God's blessing, God's mercy, his healing, he went from not being able to talk at all to not being able to stop sharing what it was that he had experienced. And a few weeks before that, we talked about uh, the man who was, uh, the demon was cast out, right? The man at Gerasenes uh, and how Jesus Landed on the shore, he's, he's getting ready to go and do ministry. He comes across this man who has a demon. Jesus casts it out, and he finds out that the, the demon is called Legion. And it, Legion wants to not be cast just across the world, but into a herd of pigs. So he gets his way. The herd of pigs goes over, careening over a cliff, and the people are like, what is going on? We don't want you here. You got to go. You got to go. But the man is like, Jesus, can I go with you? You've changed my life forever. I want to go with you. And does anybody remember what Jesus said to the man? Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Right? That's what Jesus said to that man. And then the scripture tells us he went away and he began to proclaim the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Right now, for the last few weeks, we've seen all these different miracles that Jesus has done. He's been bouncing around the region He's healed people. He's fed thousands. He's um, done ministry with his disciples. He's proclaimed that the kingdom of God is coming. All these different things have been happening. Uh, And it's likely that many of these stories and many of these miracles that we've been talking about could be traced back to this man's testimony. Right? Jesus told him to go and tell his friends and family. The scripture tells us that's exactly what he did. He went to the Decapolis proclaiming what God had done for him and that many people marveled. We see that evidence of that man's testimony, and we see it right here in Scripture today as we jump into our Scripture. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. Now let's go ahead and jump right in. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. Some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can we feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they, the disciples, said, Seven. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces, left over seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his... So there's a bonus. We'll call it a bonus application for today because this is kind of tracing back a bit. But this is the first point today. Share your story. Right? Share your story. You never know 
how far that story is going to go or what kind of movement it's going to kickstart. Right? What does that look like? What does it look like to share your story? It doesn't mean you have to sit down with somebody over lunch and share the whole Romans Road gospel, but how is God at work in your life? What has God done specifically for you? Right? That's, that's what this guy would have shared with people. Just that his, this demon had been cast out and his life has been changed forever. Right? If we've given our life to Christ, if we're experiencing the transformation of the Holy Spirit, our life has been changed forever. So what does that look like in your life? Right? How can you share that with people through your day-to-day interactions, whether it's in the workplace, it's with neighbors, friends and family, kids maybe? Like, How do you share your testimony and how God has changed your life? That's the, that's the first point this morning. Share your story. You never know how far it will go or what kind of movement it's going to kickstart. Right, so the second miracle that Jesus has done of feeding thousands, it draws some similarities that you probably remember from the first story, right? In this one, Jesus feeds 4,000. In the last one, it talks about Jesus feeding 5,000. Uh, in this one, they, they take up seven baskets full of leftovers at the end. And the story before the 5,000, they took up 12 baskets. You know, the first time I read it, I thought, well, that's not as impressive as the first time. It's only 12 baskets of leftovers. <laughs> Bottom, he started and he fed all the thousands. It's pretty, pretty incredible. In this story, the 4,000, he is in a, a remote region. It says how, you know, they say, how could anybody feed these people in this desolate place? Whereas in the last story, I mean, they weren't exactly in a metropolis, but there were places nearby where they could have gotten food. And Jesus said, basically, you know, it's not their burden. We can take care of this. There's some slight differences, but there's a lot of similarities. But here's one that is, I think, a key difference. It says that they heard Jesus teaching for three days. They were there for three days listening to Jesus teach. So long that over time, their food sources depleted. Everything was going away. They literally sat there until they were on the verge of starving. And Jesus, seeing this, had compassion on them and decided, hey, we've got to feed these people. We can't have them fainting on the way home. they got to go home and share what they've learned, right? There seems to be a connection between the people's desire to hear from Jesus, to learn from him, and his compassion, his response to them. Right? There seems to be a connection there, that there's this desire, this willingness to spend time with Jesus, to spend time learning, and then his response to them. When we have a desire to connect with Christ, we can be confident of his compassion and his provision. Right? When, when we are so in tune with God, when it's our desire, like from the pits of who we are, we just we want to spend time with Christ. We want to be closer to Christ. When that's true of us, we can have all the confidence in the world that we are going to experience Jesus' compassion and his provision. Right? These people that Jesus has been doing the miracles for, more than likely, the vast majority of them in this region, the Decapolis, were Gentiles. Right? We're not talking about mostly Jews here. We're talking about mostly Gentiles. So Jesus didn't have that ethnic, nationalistic responsibility to them. That, that would have been an expectation with the Israelites, right? The Israelites were God's chosen people, in the Israelites' minds, the Gentiles were like the enemy. 
So they would not have been expecting Jesus to bless them in the way that he did. But he still blessed them, and he still welcomed them with open arms. And the thing is, they didn't have to do anything to deserve it but show up. Right? By, by all practical measures, in the disciples' eyes and the Pharisees' eyes, they didn't deserve anything, let alone a blessing. And all they had to do was show up and be in God's presence. So the first application, aside from the bonus this morning, is this. The most important decision that you can make today is to give your life to Christ. Right? That is far and above everything else you could hear this morning or take from this passage, the most important decision that we can make is to give our life to Christ. If you leave this morning and hear nothing else of what I say, I would be perfectly fine with that. Just hear this. The most important decision we can make is to give our lives fully over to Jesus Christ. Right? He gave his life on the cross for us. He came as a baby. He was born. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He spent three years with his closest friends doing ministry, doing miracles, doing all these amazing things. His, one of his greatest friends betrays him. And in mock trial, he gets sent to the cross. And he's a, the son of God. He could have called down angel armies. He could have probably taken himself off that cross. But instead, he went willingly and he gave himself for us so that he could be the replacement for our sin, for our punishment. And the most important decision we could make would be to give our life, to put our faith in Christ, to put our trust in him, our obedience in him, and spend eternity in heaven with him. That is the most important decision we could make today. I like in verse 4, it says, And the disciples answered him, How can we feed the people with bread here in this desert place. That word feed is again in verse 8 translated a little bit different. And the word is satisfied there. Right? They ate and were satisfied. That word satisfied, when you look in the, the original text, it is the exact same word. So another possible, even maybe more accurate translation could be for who is able in this remote region to satisfy these people with bread. Our satisfaction is found in Christ alone. Right? There are things that we need to survive, right? Food, water, shelter. That's about it. We need those things. But far and above those, the thing that we need the most is Jesus Christ. We think those things are going to satisfy us, but until we've found Christ and we've accepted Christ, nothing will fully satisfy us. Let's jump back in. Mark chapter 8, verse 11 through 13. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. It's kind of ironic. <laughs> This, this whole passage is just full of irony. Right here, Jesus has just fed 4,000 people with seven loaves and a few fish, and the Pharisees are like, we need a sign. <laughs> That's not good enough. We need a sign that, that you are who you say you are. Right? The signs that Jesus was giving, healing people, feeding thousands, 
changing lives. None of that was enough for them. That wasn't the sign that they wanted. Uh, it says that, that they wanted a sign from heaven. They wanted something that was more apocalyptic in nature, something that signaled that the end was drawing close, a sign that would, would be comfort for, for God's chosen people, a sign that maybe meant wrath and destruction against God's enemies. What they were hoping for was that Jesus would give them a sign that those Gentiles, their enemies, Rome, would be destroyed and they would be pulled back to prominence, that they would have life back the way that they wanted it to, that they could rule themselves. The sign that the Pharisees wanted was their own. And they weren't going to be satisfied until they got it. And that's not what Jesus was giving them. And it seems that there's maybe there's four reasons that are possible that they didn't get the sign that they were looking for. And I think any of the four or all of the four, or maybe it's none of the four and it's one that I hadn't thought of yet. <laughs> any of these four, though, could be the reason that they didn't get the sign that they were looking for. The first one is the request came from the wrong people. Simple as that. The request came from the wrong people. The Pharisees, they represent the people that the Bible sometimes characterizes as this generation. You see that phrase once in a while, this generation. And these Pharisees, they really begin to represent that phrase. People who continually defy Jesus. People who are tempting the disciples to be ashamed of him, to walk away from him. People who are faithless. Right? That's... That's the kind of people that the Pharisees were. The request comes from the wrong people. They weren't in the right standing to be making any kinds of demands of Jesus, but that's exactly what they were hoping to do. The second possibility, the request is too late. Right, if you look in the book of Mark, as we've come through Mark through 1 through 3, 6, Jesus is really pretty patient. He has a lot of good things to say. He's, he's being patient with the disciples or with the Pharisees. He's, he's giving them a chance. And it's not until they begin plotting Jesus' death that he says, okay, enough is enough. You don't get any more signs. I don't need to keep trying with you. Chapter 1, verse 44, right? Jesus heals a leper, and then he sends that leper back to the Pharisees as a witness to what he's done. Chapter 2, verse 10, he commands the paralytic to walk. Remember this? Uh, they lower him through the ceiling, and they command the paralytic to walk, and he gets up, and it's right in front of all of the people, including the Pharisees. Chapter 2, verse 17, he explains to the Pharisees why he's eating with sinners, why it's important that he's with people who are imperfect. 2, 19 through 22, he explains why his disciples don't fast, that it's important for them to celebrate while he's here on earth. In 22, 25 through 28, he justifies the fact that he supposedly broke the Sabbath using terms and experiences or examples from the Old Testament that they would have understood. And then in 3.6, they begin plotting, scheming, trying to figure out how they can end any kind of influence that he would have over people. And it's right there that we see a turning point. Right? Almost as if Jesus is saying, all right, you have all the evidence that you need. You have all the evidence that I'm going to give you. It, it, no more. If you can't figure it out, you're not going to figure it out. It's almost as if that's what he's saying to the Pharisees. 
The third possibility, Jesus refuses because they're trying to tempt him just as Satan had in the desert. Right? It's very clear that the Pharisees wanted a sign that aligned with their will. They weren't going to be satisfied until they got a sign that they almost like said, Jesus, if you show us this thing, then we'll believe. But that thing wasn't in alignment with God's will. That sign that they wanted wasn't going to be in accordance with God's will. So if Jesus had given them that sign, that apocalyptic end times kind of sign that they were looking for, it would have been in disobedience to God the Father. And as you read and as we know, Jesus never disobeyed the Father. Everything he did was in alignment with God's will. And the fourth possibility, giving the Pharisees the exact sign that they wanted would be contrary to the nature of faith in the kingdom of God. Faith in God requires exercising a certain trust, a certain obedience, a certain discernment. Demanding that, that God give a specific sign, regardless of what his will is, is neither trust nor obedience. It's literally it's the antithesis of faith. To say, God, I'm only going to believe if. I'm only going to follow you if. Fill in the blank. That's no longer faith. <laughs> That's making demands of God, which, which we don't get to do. <laughs> As we learn what God's will is and we, we begin to pray, and we can ask for all the things we can think of that are in accordance with his will. And he may bless us with those. But when we start making demands that are outside of that, we're starting to tread on dangerous ground, just like the Pharisees. As I think about different ways to apply the scriptures as I'm reading, I like to think about it in terms of characters. So we have the 4,000 we already talked, like with them, the, the most important thing we could do is to give our life to Christ, right? The second application pulling from the Pharisees is this. If you're somebody who's often antagonistic towards faith, towards Christianity, or you're skeptical, stop asking for a sign and instead ask God to widen your perspective to see what he's already doing in your life. Right? Stop asking for a sign and ask God to widen your perspective to see how and where he is already at work around you. Because he is. Without the shadow of a doubt, God is at work in and around your life. It's just a matter of opening our eyes to see it. Jumping back in at 14 through 22, we've got a lot to get through this morning if you hadn't, hadn't noticed. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. In the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand? 
The disciples, they only had this one loaf of bread, or it depends on what translation you read. Some of them say no bread, others say one loaf. The bottom line is they didn't have enough food to eat. And Jesus, realizing this, sees an opportunity for an object lesson, and he says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. It's interesting, it it triggers them, right? It triggers them. You know, I'm kind of hungry. Kind of hungry, where's the food? And it's like they see each other and they begin arguing. Well, I thought you were grabbing the groceries. You were supposed to grab the food before we got on the boat. Like, what are you doing? What are you, what's going on here? And here Jesus is trying to teach them something. And instantly their stomachs take over and they're more concerned about what to eat and where their food's coming from. But what is, what is it, first of all, what is it that Jesus is trying to teach them? Before we deal with the disciples' response, what is Jesus trying to teach them? What is leaven? Leaven is kind of like yeast. I remember during COVID, when we were at the peak of like not really having anything, I was trying to get bread. We couldn't buy bread anywhere. So I was like, oh, I'll go find some yeast. We also couldn't find yeast anywhere. There was nothing anywhere on any shelves. Um, I found a box of hot roll mix, though, and that's got some yeast in it. Uh, But, sorry, sidebar. (laughs) When we think of yeast, a lot of times we think of dry yeast, right? Like an active ingredient that you mix in with some things, and then you like put it in a bowl, let it rise for a while, and you can make some bread or rolls or whatever it is that you're going to make with it. But leaven was a little different than that. So when you take some of what was already there, like as you're making the dough, you take a little bit, you set it aside, you keep it someplace where it's not going to go bad, add some things to it over time, and that grows, and then you can make more of what you already had. And you just keep this process up, right? The problem with leaven, like Amish friendship bread, (laughs) if you screw it up, if you let it get way too warm, if you let it go too long, before before you do what you're supposed to do, it can go bad, right? Anybody had that experience? Hopefully not. It's not good for you to eat it that way. It doesn't taste good. It can make you sick. The same thing, this is what Jesus is trying to say here, of the Pharisees. Beware of their teaching. Beware of their example. Beware of the poison that they are trying to put in your life because they are trying to mess you up. That's what Jesus is trying to say to them. This leaven, this leaven is it's, it's living. And if it goes bad, it can ruin the whole batch. It can make you sick. It can impact everything you do. If they begin to take in just little bits of what the Pharisees are saying... Just little bits. It can ruin the whole batch. Or it can ruin everything about their life. It can alter their faith, how much they trust in Jesus. And he's warning them against the leaven of the Pharisees. And the leaven of the Pharisees that he seems to be getting at here is their intentional disbelief in spite of evidence. Now that seems to be the common denominator between the Pharisees and Herod. They didn't believe despite the evidence that was there in front of them. Jesus is cautioning his disciples against unbelief, and here they are, immediately distracted. And he's trying to caution them, don't fall prey to the disbelieving Pharisees. And they're like, you know, I'm hungry. I could really use a bite to eat. Instantly. 17 through 18, Jesus asks the disciples a few questions. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? 
Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? Jesus asked the disciples these questions, and it's like he's gradually jabbing them just a little bit harder with each question, trying to go a little deeper, penetrate a little farther. So the five questions, do you not perceive or understand? Jesus has been giving them this inside look. Through his whole ministry, they've had the inside look. They get this special wisdom, right? It actually tells us uh, in Mark 4.11, Jesus told them that they had been given the secret of the kingdom of God. They got a a glimpse behind the curtain. And he's asking them here, do you you still don't get it? (laughs) I've been giving you special privileges this whole time to understand. You still don't get it? That second question, are your hearts hardened? He called out the Pharisees. He called out different people from time to time about the hardness of their heart. Right When he healed the man with the withered hand, he talks about the Pharisees' hardness of heart because they don't accept it. He was challenging them to consider the, spread, uh, the special position and knowledge that they had by asking them, are your hearts hardened? Third question, having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear? And he's calling them out for their lack of spiritual awareness in language that they would have drawn from, from the Old Testament in words that they had heard before, right? When they would go to the synagogues to hear the teaching from the Pharisees, these are the words that they would have heard in the prophecies. Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear. It would have immediately made them recollect things that they had heard before and gone, oh, right. You're right, I am missing that. And if you want to look at any of those passages, Isaiah 6, 9, Jeremiah 5, 21, and Ezekiel 12, 2. Those are some of the passages you can look for that talk about that same word, in having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear. And the last one, do you not remember? He's calling them out for forgetting. <laughs> Immediately they forget, for being short-sighted. And he's simultaneously challenging a concept that was critical to their culture, who they were as, you know, Israelites, and remembering the deeds and provision of God. When you think about uh, Joshua, at the very beginning of the book of Joshua, before the battle of Jericho, they have to cross the Jordan River. And when they cross the Jordan, God does a miracle, miraculous thing, kind of like the Red Sea. He parts the water. They go through on dry ground, and they take up 12 stones from the dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, and they build this monument, Right? so that they can go back and remember, so they don't forget the deeds that happened, so they don't forget their wandering in the desert, so they don't forget being released out of slavery as Egyptians. They need to remember, and it actually becomes almost like a base of operations for a time period for Joshua, so it's never out of sight, out of mind, and that's exactly what the disciples do here. They forget immediately. Even though they're with Jesus, even though he's just fed 4,000, they're forgetting. They're not remembering. Right? Jesus, as he asks these questions, it gradually increases how critical the questions were in relation to their identity as God's chosen people. He wanted their proximity to him and their gaining knowledge of him to grow deeper into belief. As you look through the Gospels, you see 11 disciples got it. 11 disciples started to figure it out. One of them, Judas, the first opportunity he had to betray Jesus for just a little bit of money, he does. Judas never really got it. 
Eleven did, but Judas didn't. And Jesus is warning them that their unbelief has them painfully close to Pharisees' behavior. They are painfully close to mimicking Jesus' greatest opponents rather than being his closest friends. And looking at the disciples, I think there's two major factors leading to their unbelief. Two things that we can just as easily be susceptible to, and these are our two final applications. The third one, or the, the third application, or the first of these things that I, I see in the disciples is complacency. Complacency. They were with Jesus for all of those miracles. They were with him so much that those miracles became commonplace. Right? They expected them to happen. And they stopped allowing themselves to be deeply impacted. Right? They stopped allowing themselves to be penetrated to the heart when these things happened, when Jesus taught. Right? And I'll be the first to admit that there have been seasons of my life when I have been more difficult or more hard of heart for Jesus to penetrate. There have been seasons where I've almost felt like I'm forcing God to show me more of himself to allow him to penetrate, right? To deeply impact who I am. And that's exactly what the disciples are doing here. And it's, it's important that we not do that. There are times where I feel like I've, I've asked for more to feel like I was genuinely being impacted. I begin to take things for granted, different ways that God's blessing me, different ways that he's speaking to me. I take those for granted and just grow a bit complacent. Jesus' closest friends and his greatest opponents struggled with the same thing, the same issue, unbelief, and partially because of their proximity and their knowledge of who he was. As they begin to know him more, as they begin to be with him more, complacency can become more of a tripping hazard. The disciples treated him as friend, and as they did, they begin maybe to place a little less importance in the things that he's saying and doing. So the third application is don't allow yourself to grow complacent. Don't allow yourself to grow complacent. In a few weeks, we're going to talk about what's called the Discipleship Roadmap. It's something we've been working on uh, for a little while here, and it just kind of like helps to see how do we walk through our ministries here at First Baptist. How do we walk through the stages of discipleship within the Christian life, and as a church, how do we speak into each one of those things and help people move from one step to the next? Right? And one way to not grow complacent is to constantly or continually be thinking, what's my next step? How am I going to take one step further to grow closer to God? And as we do that, it opens our eyes, it opens our hearts, it opens our perspective to say, okay, what am I doing next? Where am I growing? How am I growing? But until then, until that's finalized and we show you all, it won't be long, but until then, three things. Connect, serve, and disciple. Connect, serve, and disciple. Connect with the people around you. Relationships are so important for growing with God and growing together. So connect with the people around you. Serve in ministry. Right? Use the gifts that you have. Whether it's here in this building, or it's at the shelter, or it's someplace else doing some kind of ministry, something to glorify God. Use the gifts that you have 
to serve. And third, disciple. God gave us, Jesus gave us the Great Commission. It was one of the last things he said to the disciples before he left. It's the most important commandment that he probably gave us, or the most important challenge, I should say, that he gave us. Go out, therefore, and baptize them, right? Teach them to obey the commandments that I've given you. Right? We need to help make, be a part of that discipleship process. Connect, serve, and disciple. The best way to continue growing in our relationship and our submission of God is to be with him. It's to continually take intentional steps to grow. The second thing that they did, the second factor, is they became concerned with their physical, everyday well-being, so much so that it crowded out time for God, time for Jesus. When we become so concerned with material problems that we start to crowd everything else out, we know there are likely problems, more problems, in the future. Right? When, we begun, when we become more concerned or too concerned with material problems, we begin to doubt Jesus' power to provide, and we begin to look for other sources of provision. Right? When we don't think God's going to provide for us, we look for it someplace else. When we look for it someplace else, we're looking for it in the wrong places. Second, we begin to vent our anxiety. We begin to talk too much about the things that we worry about. And as that happens, it can cause unnecessary arguments and unnecessary tension within the community of God. When we're talking about how concerned we are or maybe disbelieving a little bit of what Christ has in store for us, it starts to undermine the community that we're living in. We saw the disciples, they begin arguing about where is this bread going to come from? What are we going to do? It's your fault. No, it's your fault. You should have brought the bread, right? They're undermining community as they vent their anxieties to one another. Three, the pursuit of daily needs distracts us from seeing God's work and living obedient to his will. Right? When we start to put too much stake in those material needs, that's what life becomes about. That's what work becomes about. How can, I, how can I work just to put food on the table, to keep the lights on, provide for my family? And those are all needs. They're all important things. I'm not trying to discount that. We've, many of us have been there before when you're trying to make the decision between what bill do we pay this week? Because if I pay this one, I'm not going to have money to you know, pay the electric. How do you make that decision when you're so worried about what's next? Well, this some, in some ways doesn't seem like enough of an answer, but it's, it's more than enough of an answer. This is a fourth application. Trust God to provide for every need. Pray for provision and trust that God will come through. All right, pray for provision and trust that God will come true. I'm out of time, but I got one more. It's a little bit. I'll be quick. Pray for provision and trust that God will come through. It's hard to do sometimes to just pray and let it go, right? When you have those needs, those worries are right in front of you. When you're worried about collections knocking on your door, those needs are not going away instantly. But we can live as if they are. Pray that God's going to provide for them and leave it there. And don't be looking for how am I going to provide for these Start looking for how is God already providing for these? Right? Pray and trust. Pray 
and move forward. I've been there countless times where there's so many things in my life that are trying to crowd out God, that are frustrating, they're angering, they're hurtful. We're going, God, what do I have to do to get through to the next day? And sometimes it's just pray, trust, wake up and move on. He's going to provide. Remember that, that second point, right? That second thing with the disciples. When we desire God, when that's our greatest, that's our greatest desire, right? we can have confidence in his compassion. So here are the last couple things I want to leave, leave you with. They won't take more than a minute or two. Our belief in God is critical, right? Our belief is critical. Of, of everything that we've talked about this morning, that is the, the most critical thing. Putting your life, your, your, your faith in Christ or believing and continuing to learn and to get closer to God, belief is critical, right? The 4,000, they seem to get it on some level. Somehow, they, you know, they knew enough, desired enough to sit there for three days to the point of starvation. <laughs> they got it on some level, the Pharisees, they never seem to understand. If the Pharisees got it, there would not still be Judaism, <laughs> right? There would just be Christians. There wouldn't be a distinction between people who are living only in the Old Testament and people who are living in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, right? If the Pharisees got it, there would only be Christianity. The disciples, they struggle on and off, but at they eventually, they get it. And there may be seasons of life where we go through each of these, where we get it and we can't get enough of it, right? Like the people, like the 4,000. Where we're critical, skeptical, like the Pharisees, and there's maybe times when we're more like the disciples where it's kind of an on-again, off-again kind of thing. We know we believe, and we're, just, we're, we're trying to get to the end. The question is, today, where do you find yourself? Where do you find yourself today? And what is it going to take to get you to that point of the 4,000 where your greatest desire is to be with Jesus? Let's pray. God, I thank you for being a God who is infinitely patient, who no matter how many times it seems like we have not believed enough where we're not, where the pieces aren't clicking together, that you still strive you still reveal yourself to us. And God, I pray this morning that you would widen our perspective to see who you are in every aspect, in every area of life. God, you are an amazing God. We love you. We serve you. In your name we pray. Amen.